This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Today I'm chatting with Natalie and David Edgerton Warburton. David and Nat are the husband and wife team behind AgriMaster, a company that specialises in delivering financial, compliance and growth solutions to farm businesses. In this episode, you'll hear about why it's so important for farmers to adopt a business owner mindset, what essentials they should consider to future-proof their farm operation, and why we shouldn't just be looking at yield and price when determining success on farm. Let's jump in. David and Natalie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. I'm so excited to have you both on your first ever double guest episode. So really excited to dig in and see what we can come up with. No, it's fun. Yeah, no, we're excited too. Yeah. To kick off, I'd really like to learn more about how each of you started your journey in agriculture and into what you're doing now. So perhaps, David, you could start us off by telling me more about your connection to ag. I was like most people on ag, I was born into it. So from the southwest of WA, a sixth generation wool growing family originally. I was the son of a sheep farmer who was the son of a sheep farmer going back six generations. <laughs> so that's my connections. I come from a farm which is about 300 kilometres south of Perth in a beautiful wool growing region. And like a lot of kids on the farm, I grew up wanting to do a lot of things, but being a farmer, that's what kids want to do. And then really went to uni and did a Bachelor of Business, majoring in agriculture, specialising in sheep production and wool technology and things like that. That's my connection to farmers, born and bred in Kojanup. And Nat, what about you? What's been your journey in agriculture so far? So like Dave, I was born in ag. I grew up between Katanning and Kojanup, so I'm a fifth generation farming. I went to school in Katanning right through up to high school. And then when I graduated from year 12, I decided to go, I wanted to leave. I was either going to go to do teaching or I actually at the same time got a job in Westpac in Perth in card services. So I began my banking career, which extended over a 10 year period. In that time, I was city base country base, relief staff in the country as well. And then I actually ended up at Coconut Branch and I ended my journey there with Westpac just as David and I got married in 1997 and I was the site manager. But that was also when the banks were going through and shutting lots of their branches down. So I closed the branch and then I was unemployed. And then that's kind of how we all start, like David and I started in business. To add to that, I actually technically therefore married my bank manager, but uh, <laughs> it's the best way to do things, right? <laughs> best way to do business. We got the finance for the farm, so it was good. Right? <laughs> so it's typical uh, country town, isn't it? Like, because Nat had been travelling around doing a lot of relief, hadn't you? And you yep. love doing relief in country branches all around Western Australia. So yeah, no, it was good. It was a good yeah. time of my life. For me, at that same time, after uni, I went farming for ten years, eight years. Can't remember farming and expanding and buying land and Nat and I sort of met at the same time when my brother and I were buying more land and 
at work, I can tell you, Nat's old boss came to us when we were signing up loan documents. He goes, oh, boys, there's a new girl in town. You better get in there quick before she goes. <laughs> I love that so much. It is such a country town thing to do, though, isn't it? Like, it really, really is. So I feel like that's quite a, yeah, a typical country town story. But perhaps what isn't quite so typical is your connection to software and how AgriMaster came about. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Although we're sixth generation sheep farmers, we're also a pretty nerdy family. My grandfather was always heavily involved in research. And so when my father started um, clearing his bush block in 1967, he introduced him to a couple of economists at the University of Western Australia, uh, Henry Chapper and Dr. Roger Maldoon. I can't remember which one was the doctor. Yeah, my father got involved in this thing called the Farm Management Services Laboratory, which is an economics wow. unit. So he was like the experimental farmer, I suppose. So he ended up having computerized accounting and budgeting and financial records since 1967 and used to go and put them through the UWA farm computer every year and used to send satchels up every month to get his accounts done and his budget to actual comparison reports sent back and everything while my mum and him were clearing land. He was an amateur photographer, so he had a lot of hobbies outside of ag. And that then developed into this interest in software. And he went into doing software development courses for two weeks. Funny enough, it ended up being at Muresk, which was the university campus I went to when I did my Bachelor oh, wow. of Business and met with other farmers who were interested. And so he came back and ultimately wrote the first version of AgriMaster for himself to replicate what the computer at UWA was doing. Wow. And his first customers... Oh, and then he met another farmer at the time who I don't know the exact story, but he had sold, I think, his farm and wanted to do something else. So he said to my father, can I sell your software? Because he was writing software as well. But he said, I like yours better. So he said, can I just sell yours? <laughs> and he actually said to the guys at UWA, one day I'm going to put you out of business. <laughs> Confident. I like it. And I think the first 70 odd customers were very similar to the ones that also were the farmers a part of that farm economic unit. Now, my father can probably give a more accurate version of that story, but that's really how it started. I'm unusual for my generation. We're a full-time working farm, but at night, my father was always writing software. So I had a computer in my house since I was 10. So I'm, I'll admit my age, I'm 51, and I've had a computer in my house since I was 10 years old. I've grown up with software and farming pretty much as equal. And also too, Kent always just farm business hours. So then he could do his hobby after hours. And even on the weekends, like I know even when we were married or going out, like Kent wouldn't go working on the weekend unless he really had to. He would be doing his hobbies. He was very much farming is a business attitude. And that's the other culture I grew up in. Like, so farming, he goes, for example, and he was influenced by another course he did early on in his farming career. It was a farm management course and they got a, one, a big old paper diary out and the first thing the guy did is gave every farmer in the room a black texture and said can you color in every single weekend for the year and he goes you can't put anything in those now and he goes that's the first lesson in farm management wow. and he goes because if you don't get rested you can't make good decisions and da, 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 da. and my father applied to that he never worked late and he never worked weekends unless he had to like putting sheep yeah. in the shed before shearing or whatever. And he goes, he would always plan for it. he'd always plan around it. So the work always got done and always got done on time. But he had planned to the fact that he wouldn't have to work those weekends. So it was a culture I grew up and he goes, this is a business. It's a farm. 
but it's also a business. He goes, I'm building a good family, not a dynasty. And it was really different attitude, I suppose, to a lot of my friends grew up on a different culture in their farm. And I think that's kind of where I want to take today. Some of our listeners might be expecting that we're going to talk about all things software and technical tools. But what I'm keen to dig into is that whole concept of farming as a business, how to make and keep money and why it is so important to adopt a business mindset when you are farming. Quite often we hear about how agriculture is about feeding and clothing the world, how Australia has this massive opportunity to make a contribution to that. But David, I understand you've got a little bit of a different take on that. Can you tell me more about it? It's a bit of a bee in my bonnet and I know a lot of people maybe find it, I don't know, it's controversial, but there's a lot of messaging in ag that says, you know, you read conferences and things written in the press, etc. It's like agriculture is here to feed the world and paddock to plate and all this sort of stuff. And I actually think it's actually completely the wrong message. First of all, a job of a farmer is not to feed the world, it's to feed their family. They're a business. Their job is to make money in order to feed their family, pay their bills, put their kids through school. Let's just get the facts. Australia doesn't grow enough food to feed really many people at all. People that can feed are very wealthy because most people who are hungry can't afford our food anyway. So if you want to feed the world, look, I think that's a great personal ambition, but the best way to do it is probably go to the countries that are suffering food shortages and lend them your expertise on how to increase yields. But your farm business primarily, its success is measured in its profit. And that's really important. That's not a greedy thing. That's not a bad thing. Profit is really important because profit means you can invest in machinery, in people, in safety, in yield, in soil management. You can get better soil quality, which also then increases profit invest in sustainability so if we took it to extent our personal belief is only profitable farmers will feed the world because unprofitable farmers can't feed anyone because they can't invest in improvement in yield or quality or anything business and profit is the thing we should be talking about and the reason that's important is because it gets the conversation away from yield and gets the conversation moving towards profit and often there they are correlated but not always. So the way that is, if I said you could grow, say, let's say wheat. If I said you could grow a five-ton crop in your rainfall area or whatever ton crop, let's say you potential of growing five tons in your area, but it was more profitable to grow two, would you grow two? Now, the answer is yes, you should grow two because the aim is to make return per hectare and ultimate net profit, not yield. Your mission is to feed the world, then you go for five. So they're not compatible. And I think quite often as an industry, we do look at yield and price as the determinants of success. And they're definitely a factor. But what I'm hearing from you is that we need to be thinking bigger picture and it's about that profit as a business. Yeah. And I think financial control and profitability of business is the first concern. Now, the reason it's the first concern, now a lot of people might say looking after your farm, your soil, those sorts of stuff. Actually, let's put it the second concern. I think your family is your first concern. I think families tend to get neglected in agriculture a lot in lieu of profit. Sometimes people put profit before family, which I also think is a bad move. But let's say family first, profit second, because if you can't make more than you spend, you're dead before you start. So profit is the first concern. Then you can invest in yield improvement. You can invest in soil improvement. You can invest in 
technology, better equipment. You can invest in no-till equipment that can give you a better seed placement. But profit is the first priority. Until you can start making profit, you can't do any of those well, things. Well, then you have choice. To feed the family, if we take that concept and flesh it out a little bit, ultimately future-proofing the farming operation, whether that be short or long-term, is really important. Nat, from your perspective, what are the essentials that a farm business needs to be exploring to do that? Is it budgeting, business planning, diversification? What is it? I think it's really important to just do the basic things really well. So like, for example, bookkeeping. It's not seen as fun and most people just don't even enjoy it. But then also it's kind of like exercise. You may not enjoy it, but ultimately it makes you feel happier and healthier that's why you need strong financial habits because it underpins everything that you do. Bookkeeping is, it's not hard. It's just a habit that's really worthwhile maintaining for your business health, which then ultimately means you know whether you're profitable because you're measuring the dollars and then also your family happiness. Yeah. Can you have that money for a holiday? Can you do things as a family? Yep. And also too, like bookkeeping is... So obviously it leads on to your budgeting and all of those really important functions in the business. But we have so much information on tap these days, like it's never been easier. If you don't know how to do something, all you need to do is Google it and watch a webinar or a, read an article or even jump onto the ATO website. It's amazing. If I ever have a knowledge gap, I jump on. I know a lot of people don't like the ATO, but they have some really good stuff on there. And I know that they're really trying to improve their opinion in the world. But I think what Nat's saying here is that this stuff is not intellectually taxing, but it is a habit that has to be developed. And if you do develop good habits or financial, mm. what, do you, what would you call it, acumen health habits, then your business will be more successful. You will be happier. You'll be less stressed. These lead to those things. I mean, if you, I'd say all of us, let's not just say in agriculture, but everybody, the knowledge or the familiar, and knowing how much money you have or don't have or the possibility of it, it just creates so much silent stress within your body. I think just being across your finances all the time, both as a cat financials, like your actuals, your bookkeeping and your cash flow forecasting and keeping that up to date monthly, et cetera, is just critical stuff for success. And I'd say, in our whole history as a company, our most successful clients, so we call the ones that they're the ones buying all our other clients, they're just amazing at both accounting, keeping their books, and they're also, they're actually almost obsessive about cash flow forecasting, modelling. You know, they do it almost monthly. And the thing is, like, you've got to get that rhythm. Do your books every week, then you know exactly where you're at. If you have to pay people every week, then you just maintain your books. Don't just go onto the internet banking and pay it that way without entering it into your financial package. Because as we know, you can do it on your internet banking, but that's not telling you really where your business is at. Your source of truth is your financial package. I'm hearing the bank manager in you come out, Nat. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> like Wednesdays are my budget day. Every Wednesday I get in my budgets and I make sure that whatever's happened during the week, I'm reviewing that from my cash book to my budget to make sure what's been missed. Because sometimes, obviously, you may have had to pay a bill and it maybe it came through and it got lost in the email and then your budget's all out. And it's just about having a regular rhythm and sticking to it. And because you do sleep better at night, because you know, and you can recall stuff a lot quicker. If you do it every three months, 
I don't know, I find it hard to remember what happened six weeks ago, let alone three months ago. So Nat mentioned cash flow uh, forecasting and budgeting. Really good cash flow budgeting and forecasting is a form of time travel. It gives you time to make decisions. So if you're across this stuff all the time, you're very rarely caught out. You can't control much in agriculture. There's a lot of stuff that's really out of control, weather and how the seed and the animals are going to actually react to certain things, right? But you have 100% control about your money, where it goes, when it goes, how much goes, et cetera, right? So we always say that control the things you have control of extremely well, and money is one of those. If you say do something as simple like Nat said, a budget actual comparison report every month religiously, like reconcile your accounts and then do a budget actual comparison report, it's going to throw up any anomalies really quick. You might go, oh, well, my peak debt's going to blow up by 30 grand in two months. Maybe I better give the bank a call or maybe I better sell some stuff early or whatever. So you're never really caught out. It gives you time to make those decisions. But if you don't check on the stuff, if your books aren't up to date every week, if you're not checking with your budget every month or week or whatever you do, those things are going to catch you out and that causes stress and bad decisions and a whole lot of other stuff. So just good habits and discipline. It's simple stuff, but it's essential stuff. And then, you know, like when things go wrong, you've got your working budget, you've imported your actuals because you're all up to date. And then, you know, my suggestion is you always have a minimum of a two-year budget. You can actually see... Whatever chaos has happened in the last month, two months, you can see how that's going to affect your plans for the next 18 months. And it's really important because then you can actually stop and think, okay, what decisions do we need to make in the business? What do we need to reassess? I liked your analogy. It is like exercise. It's Mm. not necessarily the most fun thing, but Mm. when you get in a habit and you get it right, you definitely see it pay off. You do feel better. No, mentally you feel in control. You feel so much better. You've actually got so much more energy and then you don't stress about it at night time. I don't think people underestimate not being in control of your finances, how much people think about it all the time. And that's zapping for your energy and it's also not good for your family and everyone or your employees, everyone around you actually can feel the knock-on effect. I'll tell you what, we're all really good at avoiding bad stuff, right? Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the fitness analogy. Okay, you've had a big weekend and you've gone hard on the booze and food. Most people avoid the scales, right? Or <laughs> yeah. the bank account. Or, or the, the bank, bank account. account. <laughs> they just don't want to know. You don't want to look at your bank account. You don't want to step on the scales because you're worried about what you might find out. Yeah. But the reality is if you know, then you, you can now can something. do something about it. It's better to rip the Band-Aid off. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, but it's not just power, it's time. If I could say one thing to every farmer, I don't care how good or bad your year is, know where you're at as often as you possibly can. And even if it's horrible, rip the bayonet off because now you have time to assess possibilities, run scenarios, talk to your financier. It buys you so much time, but the longer you avoid it, the less time you have to actually make decisions. And then they become panic. And then usually panic becomes bad decisions and it's a spiral downwards. So Mm. do it early, go hard, rip it off, just get into it. (laughs) Go hard or go home. Absolutely. So changing pace a little, just slightly. (laughs) I want to move on to the mindset side of things and I'm sure there's probably a fitness analogy we can come up with at some point. But 
this concept of reluctant or accidental farmers, we're just farmers or we just do this. I'm interested in both of your thoughts on this, but perhaps I'll start with you, David. Why don't farmers see themselves at times, not all farmers, but as big business owners? Yeah, this is a really confusing one. I'd say if I look at our clients and I compare them to my friends and peers in urban business, so now I'm a city boy and I'm living in Perth, so most of my friends have work in or have businesses that are not related to farming. And our clients are much, much bigger. These urban businesses see themselves as the businesses are. They're million-dollar businesses employing people with a lot of complexity. And I'd say most of our farming clients are sitting in the country. They're large, multi-million-dollar businesses with staff, high complexity, high risk, a lot of stuff going on. But for somehow, they don't see themselves in the same way. They usually form everything with that really bad word, just. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a wheat grower. I'm just a sheep farmer. Whatever it is. And I'd implore all farmers to get rid of the just. No, you're quite a large, complex business. And as soon as you admit that, you start thinking like one. The other reason I think it is, is I think, to use your word, most of us, including me, when I left university, were accidental business managers. Most people in farming, the vast majority, are still born into the business. So you're just there, right? Mm. So if I started a business, an urban business, family business is probably similar in any industry, but if I started a business, I'm going to start, okay, I've got to get customers, I've got to sell things, I've got to do books, I've got to... Oh, I need to get money from the bank. I need to do a cash flow. And you're starting a business. But most people in farming just sort of are born into it. And so you're almost like an accidental business person. Somehow you've got to go through some deliberate transition in your mind to say, okay, I'm running a business here. And I think it's not clear cut. There's no line to say you've gone from a son or a daughter to a business owner. Hmm. There's no moment. There's no rites of passage there. There's no handover. There's there's no, you know, handshake and here you go. Yeah. So, for example, I wrote a post on LinkedIn the other day around, um, I believe that all farm employees, including sons and daughters, should be paid a salary and not be allowed to draw out of the farm books, right? Hmm. One of my main arguments for that, it creates that conversation. I'm employing you, say, Annie, to work on the farm. This is your title. This is your pay. This is your responsibilities. This is the outcome I'm expecting of you. The same as if you got employed by our company or any other urban company, right? And it gets rid of all those unwritten expectations, you know, Mm. and it makes it clear. And then it suddenly says, okay, we're a business. And it separates you as a daughter or a son from you as the manager they are now technically two different roles it professionalizes it as well because whether you're a farm or whether you're a business wherever small business there's roles and responsibilities there's jobs to be done and people are responsible primarily for jobs to get done and like farming's no different to a small business if a small business someone gets sick then someone has to pick up the work Mm. from day one we've always paid ourselves a salary and just stuck to that it just stops that bickering. So, we don't have that issue because we don't have kids in the company or anyone else. But it's like, you know, we see a lot of family fighting that can come because there's no clear lines. If you've got clear lines, it really does stop that. We've actually always done this as a family. So when we took on Agrimaster, we went to my father and we actually took it on on a contract. We actually have a signed distribution agreement and licensing agreement, which we pay my father every month. 
because we didn't want to be given, we didn't want those lines to be blurred. If our eldest son came and worked for the family, he doesn't report to us, he reports to one of our senior people within the team. We'd encourage in agriculture, we so much see so much disruption in farm businesses because these things are never really addressed. Professionalisation actually brings families closer and actually helps you become a better business, we believe. I totally agree that there are obvious benefits to the farm business, to the farmer, to the family for adopting that business mindset. But what about the broader industry? What's the benefit to the broader industry if we're encouraging farmers to adopt that mindset? Ultimately, from an industry point of view, I actually believe it will drive profitability. The other thing is innovation. You know, it'll maybe allow businesses the intellectual freedom to bring in people from outside of agriculture Mm. into the business. It'll encourage the adoption of new business models. It doesn't necessarily have to be just inheritance-based. I love, love, love coming across really exciting farm business models that are outside the norm. It's not just mum and dad and sons for, like me, six generations taking on the farm and borrowing more money and buying more land. Some people are joining their businesses together. Some people are doing a partnership with corporate investors and family farms together. There's these really interesting stuff. And I think professionalisation almost cracks that open and makes it, if you sat down as a family, we are a family that have a business then the business, it's opened up to make business decisions that are separate from the family. I mean, if you think of it like as a, a business that the family owns as opposed to a business that the family is in and it's different. And the other thing is not everybody wants to be a farmer. So most farms are sitting on a huge amount of capital. So if one of the family members wants to start up a motorbike shop in Adelaide, and needs funding capital, that's really hard if you're in a business, but farmers are in this amazing position where they could leverage off the farm asset to lend money to rent the building and get stock. And you could launch so many businesses off the back of that farm asset base. It's not even related to farming. And it could be in fertilizer distribution or motorbikes or in caravan park. I don't know. <laughs> it's a springboard for so many other opportunities. It yeah. is a massive spring. I think it's an underestimated springboard. I think If farming families saw it as just an asset that can leverage, yes, you can buy more farming land with it, but there's so many other businesses you can launch off the back of that capital base. And also, like, you know, ag's really amazing at having all their grower groups and their days and stuff where they obviously talk a lot about ag and, you know, they get in speakers and stuff. But I think what would be amazing is if they actually started joining business groups that weren't ag Mm. just to open up their mindset. I'm not saying that they don't have an open mindset, but it would just, like Dave's saying, open up so many more opportunities because you don't know what you don't know. And I think we talk about diversification in agriculture and we look at that more as being commodity-based or income-based, but what about diversification of learning and thought and bringing in people from other industries to learn from them from a business perspective as well? Is that something that you see not that we need to get better at yeah because i mean the thing is i know even in here we love to have a certain amount of people that are from ag so they can really deeply understand our customers and stuff but we also make sure that we don't employ people from ag because they ask the most amazing questions about you know things that we may be doing and like they bring so many new different solutions and you go oh my god that's actually amazing and that will just work perfectly that's because they're just asking questions from a very naive perspective, but you can't see the wood for the trees. 
I used to belong to a tech group, which is like a CEO meetup group once a month. And no one in that group had the same business as me, but it was so much value because I'd present on something and they would ask these questions because I knew nothing about software or agriculture. And they'd ask all these questions and go, oh my God, I never thought of it like that. And imagine the innovation in ag if they were part of a meetup once a quarter or a month and half the businesses there were doing something other than agriculture because they would actually give game perspectives around their business. And in, I think it would just accelerate innovation in ag unbelievably if ag deliberately networked with businesses outside of the agricultural industry. But they could also bring a lot to them as well because, like, you're remote. And when something goes wrong, you have to think on the run and you have to be innovative and it's very much a two-way thing. Farmers, again, just a farmer. Can I just go back to that? Absolutely, yeah. Farmers are probably the best project managers I've ever come across. Now, we live in a mining state where project managers are every second person you come across. Farmers are just kick-ass at this. They are so <laughs> Look, when we induct our non-ag staff into agriculture, they might go, how do these guys do this? They're chemists, they're grain traders, they're logistics engineers, they're project managers. I reckon nearly all of our clients could walk into any industry and just be the top of the food chain. Like they are amazing at what they do and they just put it under that banner, I'm just a farmer. So are we selling ourselves short as an industry and is there potential for farmers to play a larger role in broader business, broader society? To answer your question, I think it requires a level of vulnerability. It's like anything. You first have to step out from behind that farmer curtain. And I think in agriculture. You have to want it. Yeah. You've got to want to know and be challenged. I think we find this in workplaces. If you're open to being challenged, you'll learn a lot. But if you think you already know, what they say, only a wise man knows he's a fool. I find that there's a lot of people on ag that are incredibly good but they would never say i'd say they're so nervous to leave even though they're so successful they would be so nervous to leave the confines of their farm business thing thinking that they're not going to be good at anything else and i actually think it's completely the opposite i think they would be amazing at other stuff but it's even the like the social skills in a small community you have to get on with everyone otherwise oh, they're you've got amazing. no mates I think farmers can teach people a lot. Sorry, the point I was trying to make was it requires vulnerability from both sides to learn from each other. And farming has got this great image of toughness. Like, let's say urban friends, I'd never be a farm where they have such a hard life and, you know, the drought and the flooding rains. And a lot of people make a hell of a lot of good money in agriculture. And what has to happen is that this cross-conversation can't happen until people go, hey, we're a really good business and we make really good money. And until you're willing to stand up in public and say that, we can't have a conversation with other businesses because they want to learn from your success. They should be proud of that. Like it's okay to be successful. I mean, it's always in the way you deliver the message. But if you're doing well, be proud of that. Yeah, they're not sharing their success. I'd say the vast majority of our clients are incredibly successful businesses, but no one would ever know it. And I think it, it is an element of being humble but it also is that hard working head down to lift the eyes and kind of think about talking about how successful you are almost stereotypically doesn't come with the territory and that's that broader way that the industry looks at itself of it is a business 
Well, I think I didn't know this until I quit farming myself and got into software full-time with Nat. And when I got up here, so when I was at home with a farm, you just talk shop the whole time. You're in your own little echo chamber and you talk shop with all the other farmers. And even when you go to an event, you go to a conference and it's just full of farmers or people who service farmers. And it's just, we have this agricultural echo chamber. And I got to Perth and nobody talks about farming, you know, right? And all my friends, wouldn't know a farmer of it hit him in the head. And so if you want to talk about business, you talk in the context of you can't talk shop. You talk about all the other things associated with business, the common moving parts of business, not the particular things to like for a grain, sheep, yield, crop. You can't haven't got those conversation pieces. So I think really there is so much opportunity, but you're right, it's about being vulnerable on both sides yeah and i think vulnerability is a hard thing i think there's a we read our own press and we shouldn't the image that farming gives to the world is a little bit different you know it's a bit like tourism i say when you go to a country they shows you all the amazing things that it is so you come as a tourist but if you live there it's actually a very different place and i'd say agriculture inside is not what it, it looks like from the outside and i think to have honest conversations and share knowledge and give knowledge and to really take that next leap agriculture has to lift that veil Um, also too like you feel so good after it like it's really good to share knowledge and also then see someone else in business take that knowledge and actually grow from it you know for them to come back and go my god i tried that and you know what it worked it was just such a good suggestion we both love agriculture and agribusiness in particular but we don't like the stereotypes. We just don't think the stereotypes serve agriculture in any way at all. They're rolled out routinely both by farmers and suppliers. And I just think it's holding industry back. What can we do as a broader industry to break those stereotypes and break them down? I think just don't hide behind them. We've got to get rid of the I don't know what the Australian version of the stereotype, but in America it's always the red barn and the guy with the pitchfork. We've got to get rid of all that stuff, right? That still exists. You can dress with whatever you like. But don't use just. You don't use just. Just stop saying you're just a farmer. Say you run a farm business. Don't hide behind the get up early, work till dark type stuff. I mean, you may or may not do that, but I know hundreds of business owners and they all work just as hard as farmers do. Mm. Yes, you do work hard, but everybody else works hard too. There's the technology side of things as well, like, Farmers are implementing all these amazing technologies. Quite often they're first to know about technologies, have a crack at them. There are so many, as you were saying, different roles within the one farm business. So let's project that. Like farm employees. So we're running a big campaign in Perth at the moment to try and attract employees to our customers for harvest. So they've got beautiful environments generally, a lot of cool tech, right? sexy bits of machinery and if they showed that stuff off the technology the machinery the innovation that's the bit of agriculture we need to show people i reckon you're going to get a rush for the door the people who want in it's a really really cool place on the inside but all we show them is sunsets and okubras get rid of that stuff it doesn't serve you it makes you a tourist attraction but not a place you want to live People want to live in the high tech. There's so much amazing tech in ag, it's ridiculous, right? There's so much cool business that even if you're not into tech, if you're into a trading, 
you know, the grain trading, the finance, there's so many areas of agriculture. The science of ag is off the charts. doesn't matter who you are. There's an amazing channel in agriculture. But we got to put that out there, like any high-tech industry, and ditch the dust and Akubra stuff. It's just not bringing the best of farming or new people to the industry. And there's plenty of people who do want to live in the country that obviously they want to live in a nice environment and they want to be paid the right amount of money. So that's really important too. Mm. They're not going to move for substandard money or an environment. And I think we're at a different generation now. We're sort of post-pioneer now. And so people aren't going to want to live in an asbestos house on a dusty farm. They want a nice, beautiful home with a swimming pool and nice cars and just like people in the city do. It's also that stuff too, understanding that if you want good people, they want the same environment. If you want people to come to your business, they want the same environment they'd get anywhere else. People aren't willing to do it tough anymore. Sort of our forefathers, including my parents, did it that way. Mm. but the current generation that's my generation but probably more on, I'm going to put you your generation <laughs> and, and, and younger it, it, no people just are saying we're not doing that anymore you know like if they can get $25 an hour in a bar in Adelaide they're not going to go out 200k's and get paid the same and then have to pay rent like they're just not going to do it but if you supply people with both your family first, but then also your employees with beautiful places to live, really good environments, equivalent pay. You don't have to pay them more. And generally, or sometimes you do because you're isolated, but because the people want to work in a nice place. So yes, they want all the cool tech and the, you want agriculture has to be more than a place people want to visit as a novelty. Mm. It's got to be a place they want to work. And I think that kind of brings it in a really full circle in that if we're to provide that, you have to be profitable. Yep. Yep, you do. Very much so. The main competition for farm labour is mines mm. because our towns, when I was farming, we had a big labour source in our local town. There's not many big labour sources in local towns anymore. So you're going to be getting labour from urban areas. Urban people are going, do I go and work for $45 an hour driving a truck in a mine site? with free accommodation and food and da 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 or do I go and drive a tractor in the wheat belt for 25 bucks an hour and live in the back of the shearers quarters. And I think this is where we're evolving to. So profitable businesses now, because we're now going to have to supply more. So again, profit is a big driver here, just what you said, because your expectations have gone up as well. And so, it has to be budgeted for. Yeah. Profit is the starting point for all of this. It is. It really is. And I liked that, how you brought that budgeting piece back in. I feel <laughs> like we've kind of finished where we started and it just shows the importance of bringing in all those elements to have that attitude that you are a farm business, you are a business owner. Yep. Yep, yeah. definitely. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you both, perhaps what is the most important question of the day? And that's one that we ask all of our guests on Beyond the Farm Gate. And that I'll start with you. When you're out on the farm visiting clients perhaps or back when you're home, what work boots do you wear? I used to have blundies, except the children have taken them now. <laughs> and Damn so children. I just wear sand shoes now. <laughs> and David, what about you? I've actually got Rossi's gel soles, Rossi gel soles. I love them. Ooh, yeah. I like the detail there. I don't think we've had anyone that's gone into that kind of level. I still wear them every single day. 
when we moved to the city, I built a workshop at the back of our house. I'm onto my third pair since moving to the city. So I still wear them. And I moved from Blundies to Rossi's when they released Gel Soul in the 90s. Yeah, wow. I would say that you're a loyalist then. I don't know. I'm a comfortness. <laughs> if that's a word, I just made a word up. Well, thank you both for chatting with me today. I couldn't think of two better people to star in our first double guest episode. Thank you, Annie. Great. Thanks, Annie. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert and I'll chat to you next time.